please receive the benediction. Actually, where'd you go? <laughs> oh, okay. I'm up here by myself. <laughs> now I know what Paul meant to Timothy when he said, all men forsook me and fled. <laughs> I actually thought you were going to, a third one. I, I didn't, wouldn't have said that one. You came and you said, do I agree? And I disagree. Early. Amen, brother. <laughs> Who is uh, home babysitting today, uh, watching me on television. So how you doing, sweetheart? So... Well, I have a passage of scripture I'd like to read this morning. But first of all, I need to get you there. It's from the Old Testament. What else would you expect from me? <laughs> it's from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 6. Uh, if you want to turn to it. This screen that you can see up in front of you has been on the overhead numerous times this year, abandoned to God. And I've looked for an incident in Scripture where somebody illustrated, at least on that occasion, a, a life that was abandoned to God. But before we get to the text, let me uh, set you up for it and give you some background to it. There's an interesting story in 1 Samuel chapter 4 where the Israelites were engaged with the Philistines in battle. And the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. And believing that somehow the God of Israel lived inside of that ark, they believed that if you captured the box, you captured the God who lived in that box. We've all heard of kidnapping. Ever heard of Godnapping? They had, they had stolen God. But when they get the Ark of the Covenant back to their own territory, it is nothing but headaches. And so they beg the Israelites to take back the covenant into their camp. But since there is no tabernacle or no holy of holies in which the Ark can be placed, it is stored in the home of a private citizen. Fast forward the tape to our biblical story where David has now become king and he discovers to his chagrin that this holy ark of the covenant is being stored in somebody's attic or basement or garage. And so chapter 6 
is the account of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant from the home of this individual into the city of Jerusalem, his new capital, where he will construct a tent in which the Ark of the Covenant may be housed. I direct your attention now to 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. Think Ichthus and throw in 10,000 more. He and all his men set out from Baalah of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the Ark. They set the Ark on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on top of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might. They were doing it before the Lord with songs and with harps, with lyres, with tambourines, with sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there, right beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of this guy for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his household. And King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all of his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpet. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, 
watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had just pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he got a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins to each person he gave them. The whole crowd of Israelites, men and women, and the people all went back home. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants, like a vulgar fellow would do. Hmm. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by the slave girls you speak of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And that kind of picked her up where we end the scripture. There are two phrases, two words in two verses that I would like to accentuate for my topic this morning. In verse 7, we read these two words about Uzzah. Uzzah died. And in verse 14, we read that David danced. And that is my topic for this morning. Uzzah died, but David danced. Are you more dying or dancing? Shriveling or celebrating? Let me read just three other verses that will chime in with my topic. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 4. There is a time to mourn, and there is a time to dance. I may be wrong, but I think maybe one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit inspired that verse is because it describes our final exam week. <laughs> there is a time to mourn before it starts, and there is a time to dance when it's finished. Psalm 150, verse 4. Praise the Lord with tambourines and dancing. Luke, chapter 15, verse 25. 
Meanwhile, in that parable of Jesus, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near father's house, he heard music and dancing. Now, let me concede this morning that uh, to those of us who are Christians, this story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 sounds bizarre. Right? I mean, a team of oxen is pulling a cart on top of which rests the Holy Ark of the Covenant. Now, I'm well aware this morning that that's not exactly the way God wanted to be done. That's the way the Philistines carried the Ark when they took it back to their place. They took it on a new cart. Not only is the devil in the details, but sometimes God is in the details. And we have to decide whether we want to do it a Philistine way or a God way. Apparently, they chose the Philistine way. One of these oxen stumbled. The cart started to rattle and to shake. Maybe the Holy Ark of the Covenant slid to the edge of the cart. And this guy, Uzzah, seeing what would probably happen, in all good intention and motivation, reached out, placed his hand for hands against the Ark to keep it from falling and it was like touching a high voltage wire. He died on the spot. I mean, for instance, what a contrast between an ark which cannot be touched and a Jesus who can be touched. I don't know of anybody in the scripture who suffered immediately and instantaneously rigor mortis because they touched Messiah. And so I, I, I say for numerous reasons, uh, this story strikes us as, uh, as rather strange. And let's. However, lest you feel it's all too Old Testament, let me remind you of, of a story in the book of Acts that has some kind of a parallel. Do you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5? We are told there that they did what? They fudged on their tithe. And what happened first to him and then to her, you know, don't you? 
We are told they both died instantly on the spot and were dragged out of the sanctuary by their heels. Now, if I were a pastor of a local church, which I am not, there is one Sunday of the year that I would always preach from Acts 5. That is on Stewardship Sunday, when I'm encouraging the people to tithe. I would take two of the elders, and I would have them dragged on their backs by their feet out of the sanctuary and said, we don't want any Ananias number two in this place, so you people better fess up and give. <laughs> maybe, that's not why I'm, maybe that's why I'm not a local church pastor. So I've, uh, I, I've thought about this particular story. And what could the Holy Spirit say to us through it? Well, I, I, I want to suggest three particular points that I have that I think you and I can glean from this story. Here's my first one. Think about this. Places where God's presence dwells are not only beautiful and sacred and holy and inspiring, but they are potentially dangerous and lethal. Look up there. I need to add one more line to the overhead that I make up spontaneously. Places where God's presence dwells are not only inviting and sacred and beautiful and awesome, they are potentially lethal, comma, if you ignore the boundaries that go with that privilege. Think, for instance, of a parallel in the Old Testament to this event. I remember uh, Steve Dinette spoke from this, uh, briefly at least, in one of his messages back to us in the fall revival. Remember Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. What a spectacular manifestation of the presence of God that was so overwhelming that it took everybody's breath away. And yet we are told on that occasion that God instructed Moses to build some kind of a barrier around the base of the mountain because though it's glorious, and beautiful, and awesome, and it will take your breath away if you touch it, you will die. There is nothing to be feared from the glorious presence of God as long as you and I honor the boundaries. I'll give you an illustration of something that I continue to read about in the paper. Is there a more beautiful place, at least in this part of the country, 
to visit, especially in the months of fall, than the nearby Red River Gorge. How many of you have ever been there? Just about everybody. Sounds like we have a class down there. It is an incredibly beautiful place to visit, isn't it? And that's one reason why we go there. But why is it three or four and maybe more times a year we read such and such a person last night fell to their death? You see, it's a beautiful place to go and to drink in the glory of the scenery. But if you ignore the caution signs, like if you have too much to drink, don't go backpacking there. And don't do it in the dead of night when you have no idea where you're going. And keep to the path. Don't, 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 don't try to, to get off the path. As, as long as you honor the boundaries, you will have the privilege of drinking in saturating yourself with the beauty of this place and the beauty of this moment. So I think that's one thing that you and I can glean from this story. Here's a second truth that I think the Holy Spirit would talk to us about. I think that one difference between Uzzah and David is simply this. Try this on for size. Uzzah spends most of his time taking care of God. David has spent most of his time being taken care of by God. Uzzah is a custodian. David is a celebrant. There is Uzzah walking beside God in the box, making sure that nothing happens to that box. But think of David. Think of David, who has spent most of his life up to this point being taken care of by God. Think, for example, how many times David hid in a cave from Saul who was pursuing him with the intent of killing him. I would suggest to you this morning that, that David hid out in more caves than has Osama bin Laden. And then again and again, when David's life was on the line, being pursued by this wrathful individual, God took care of him. And think of that occasion in 1 Samuel 17 when David encountered a nine-foot-tall, trash-talking Philistine buffoon. You call him Goliath. And again, supernaturally, God took care of David. God delivered David. I don't know if I can get excited 
if my God is essentially confined to a box. But if I this morning know a God who has again and again and again delivered me, it's not difficult for me to dance. Dancing comes very easy to those whom God has supernaturally delivered. Thank you. And by the way, Dr. Dickens is up in the balcony. And got your Hebrew Bible on? Thank you. How many of the rest of you? Y'all left it back in your room? Shame on you. I think you would be interested in this, uh, people. Every time in this chapter that David is said to dance, and we can't reproduce this in English, the way the verbs are written, this is interesting, I think you'll like this. The way the verbs are written suggests a very vigorous, twirling, whirling, jumping up and down, ecstatic kind of dancing. I mean, he was really letting it all hang out. So don't think of David on this occasion simply saying, I could have danced all night. No, no, not that, not that, not that, not that. No, this, this is a no bars, no, whatever that phrase is. Uh, okay, all right. Don't know why I have the word bar in my mind, but for some reason I do. So are you taking care of God this morning? Or is your testimony this morning, he's taking care of me? taking care of me. Here's a, a, a third reason, a third point I think we can extract from this story. You and I are not responsible for keeping God from falling. If God wants to fall, let him fall. God does not hit the panic button when he hits the mud and the dirt. So you and I are not responsible for keeping God from falling. But here, listen to this. You know what? Guess what? God is committed to keeping you and me from falling. Thank you. Remember the last verse of the book of Jude? There's only one chapter in the book of Jude, isn't it? Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Now I like that chorus. When I fall down, you pick me up. When I am dry, you fill my cup. You are my all in all. Thought my students would start singing, but they didn't. <laughs> I am absolutely irrevocably committed this morning to a God who is passionately committed to picking us up when we fall down. But I'm also committed passionately to a God who is able to keep us from falling. 
I like the old preacher from a previous generation, one of my heroes. It, the name will mean nothing to you, uh, so I won't take the time to give it to you. But he used a great illustration that I've never forgotten. You want to know his name? You don't? Okay, I didn't think you did. Okay, so... Uh, but, but listen, he used a powerful illustration that I think dovetails beautifully with my point. He said, he, he pictured a scene of a cliff and the ground at the bottom of this cliff. And it was kind of dangerous at the top of that cliff. And he said, think of the Christian faith and following Jesus as something like this. The Christian faith is something like an ambulance that is parked at the bottom of that cliff, waiting to take as quickly as possible to the nearest hospital anybody who falls off that cliff. But this is the part I really like. But not only is the Christian faith an ambulance that's parked at the bottom of that cliff, waiting to rush, uh, rush the injured off to the hospital. But he said the Christian faith is also like a rope or a fence at the top of that cliff that will keep you from falling off. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Uzzah died, but David danced. What about David's wife who didn't get in on the dance? Now, I want to be very careful here in what I say. Because what David said to his wife on this occasion is not what you and I would call therapeutic words. So I do not in any way justify or excuse David. And matter of fact, I, I would say to you this morning, I don't care how many Philistines you can kill. If you can't talk to your wife without being sarcastic, you have big problems. And all of God's people said, thank you, ladies. I wondered if Mikal would be more happy if she were married to Uzzah rather than to David. Maybe so. Final thought. Because he turns to her and says, and I will be even more undignified before the Lord than I am today. In, in a moment, we're going to sing the little chorus, Undignified. Do you know it? How many of you know it? Okay. I think it was first written by Charles Wesley. <laughs> this may not be true of you, but this is my final thought. I wonder why about my own life, I learned how to march 
long before I learned how to dance. Sometimes we're much better marchers than we are dancers. And so as a child, I sang onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. And an old gospel psalm that many of you will not know, we're marching to Zion. And you remember this other Charles Wesley song, I may never march in the infantry, Thank you, Chuck. Was <laughs> it died? But David danced. Now, those are two options. Dying. Jeremy, if you'll come forward. Do you have it on an overhead, by the way? I, I like these uh, kind of uh, rock and roll Bible theology majors. Uh, so uh, God bless you, brother. Uh, and sing us, and, and Jeremy's going to dismiss us. <laughs>